You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Continuing our study in the Minor Prophets uh, today. And um, looking forward to, to looking at, at this prophetic book. It's different than um, some of the others that we've looked at, so we're going to look at some of those differences today. Um, but excited about the message that um, is contained for us here in this book. And um, didn't mention it earlier, but if you guys can be praying for me, I'm going to preach here and then um, leaving right after the service today. Uh, me and Lauren and Ben and Andrew are going to ride up to Snowbird, and I'm going to preach at their church tonight at 5 o'clock. So um, it's going to be a quick turnaround to get up there. I'm going to preach up there, and then I'm coming right back tonight after their service. So um, I told Lauren yesterday, I think I agreed to do that when it was like in the middle of the day, and I wasn't tired when I got that phone call, because if it had been in the morning or the evening, I would have said, I probably can't do that. But um, yes, we're going to try to pull that off today. So hopefully I can uh, keep the sermon separate in my mind and not preach to you tonight's sermon today. Um, Try to keep those separate because I prepared, I finished preparing both of them this morning. So um, we'll try to keep them separated in my mind. All right. So last week we looked at the, um, the book of Nahum. We said that it was the, the kind of the continuation of the story of uh, the people of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire and how God had delayed that judgment when Jonah had come and spoke truth, uh, didn't speak full, complete truth, right, but had given them enough warning about judgment. They got things right, repented. God relented from his anger, and it's about 100 years later that they've kind of reverted back to that behavior. And again, probably not the same people that had repented. They had probably died off, um, but that people group had had not responded to their parents or their grandparents' uh, teachings and instead had reverted back to previous ways. And so God brings judgment upon them and communicates that he's going to bring his wrath. But we talked about his goodness and the fact that uh, many Ninevites had been saved over the fact that he had relented from his anger 100 years before. Uh, but ultimately we saw last week that there's great hope in the fact that God uh, assures us that he won't let arrogance and oppression uh, continue forever, that when governments uh, rise up and mistreat their people, uh, particularly the people of God, God will not allow their kingdoms to endure. Uh, he, will, he will cause them to fall. Um, at some point in time, he will step in and their sin will have ripened to the point where he will not tolerate it any further. And so we saw that last week. Um, so that brings us to the book of Habakkuk today. Um, kind of a hard word to say, um, and I've been trying to convince myself to say it that way the whole week because that's how I've always pronounced it. And then in, when I was in seminary, we had a professor that would pronounce it Habakkuk. And uh, so whenever I've been studying this week, like I've been hearing his voice in my mind, um, but I don't think anybody else pronounces it that way. So um, we'll go with uh, Habakkuk today, not Habakkuk, uh, as far as how this book is pronounced. Um, this, this book, I'm gonna go, let's go ahead and jump into the summary sentence. Um, Oftentimes, we are tempted to think that God is indifferent or inconsistent in how he deals with evil in this world, but he reassures us over and over in his word to keep trusting that his justice will be carried out rightly and timely. All right, so we're oftentimes tempted to think that God is indifferent or inconsistent, meaning that he doesn't care or is oblivious to the fact that evil is happening, or he seems to treat it differently in some cases versus other cases. And we're tempted to, to see him as indifferent or inconsistent in how he deals with evil. But what he does in his word is he reassures us that we can keep trusting him, 
that his justice will be carried out and it's coming in a right way and in a timely way. For our kids, even when it seems like God is not at work, he is always carrying out his good plans. All right, so this book is is different in the sense that Habakkuk doesn't bring a message to a group of people. He's not speaking correction to the people of Israel. He's not speaking judgment to Israel's enemies. Instead, this book is a conversation between him and God. Um, and, and it's a, a conversation about his frustrations with God, uh, things that he doesn't understand, things that he doesn't agree with. And so he brings some of these concerns to God. And so it's contained for us here in these three chapters. And I think uh, if we're honest with ourselves, the questions that Habakkuk asks are questions that we ask ourselves. And so what we can be thankful for this morning is that the answers that God gives to Habakkuk are the same answers that he would give to us if we had an audible connection with him today too. Um, So lots of relevancy for us today, even though this was written thousands of years ago. Habakkuk lived in the final decades before the Babylonian captivity. Um, And so this book deals with the Babylonians coming to to attack Israel, to attack Judah, to, to bring judgment on them. Okay? So time frame-wise, we're looking at Habakkuk probably living between 640 and 626 B.C. is maybe a good conservative estimate. Um, Habakkuk, the book, brings awareness about the injustice and the idolatry that was characterizing the kingdom of Judah at that time, something that we've seen in some of the other uh, prophetic books already. I told you that it's unique in that it does not accuse or address Israel or any other nation that instead it's a conversation between him and God. And so the theme that we're going to see in this book is that uh, this book seeks to reconcile God's goodness with all of the rampant evil in the world. It tries to reconcile God's goodness with the evil or the rampant evil that we see in the world. And so Habakkuk kind of falls prey to some of the, the faulty thinking that, that we sometimes fall prey to. Certainly critics uh, tend to think this way about God and how he's revealed himself in the word. Uh, but even Christians sometimes can fall into this trap of thinking along these lines. And the thought process would be, if God is powerful, he could stop evil, right? Like we talk about God being omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. And so if, if God is all-powerful, then he could stop evil. Then the next train of thought is, is that if God is good, which the Bible talks about him being good, then he would stop evil, right? So if God is powerful, he could stop evil. If God is good, he would stop evil. And so then the question becomes, can God be both powerful and good and evil still exist? Because in our human finite minds, we can't reconcile how that can be possible. How can God be powerful, capable of stopping evil? How can God be good, assuming that he would want to stop evil, how therefore can evil still exist, right? It'd be one thing to say, oh, God is all powerful, but he's not good. Therefore, it would fully explain why evil exists, right? Because um, he's not a good God. But we believe that God is good. He's revealed himself as good. He's promised that he's good. He's also revealed himself as powerful, right? And we certainly don't believe that Satan's power rivals God's power, right? So what we believe seems to have some contradiction, that God is all powerful, can do whatever, whenever he wants, but God is also good, which means that, that his power is to be used for good purposes, and yet we see evil not being stopped. 
from our perspective. We see evil not being contained from our perspective. We certainly see evil existing, right? And so how do we reconcile God being both good and powerful and yet evil still existing in this world? The book opens with Habakkuk lodging this complaint against God. So let's look there in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look at some of the things that Habakkuk is crying out there for, right? One, he's indicating to us that that this has been a point of prayer for a while. This isn't something that he's just, uh, you know, one day woken up and, and become frustrated about, right? He didn't watch a YouTube video or see a post on Facebook and all of a sudden get angry because somebody else has been angry about something. He He has been crying out to God about this. And he feels like God doesn't hear him. He's been crying out about the violence that he sees in his country, the the people of God being violent towards one another, right? Poorly imaging God because they are not treating each other appropriately. He says, how long do I have to cry out before you recognize the violence, before you step, step in and save? Why do you make me see the sin around me? Why do you make me see the iniquity around me? Why do you idly look at wrong? You don't do anything. I don't see you stepping in and, and fixing this. Destruction and violence, they're all around the strife and the contention. He says, verse 4, the law is paralyzed, meaning that uh, the, the law has been neglected, right? It's not being used. It's not being followed. Justice doesn't come from our leadership. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice, even when we attempt to see justice in our country or our, our nation, it goes forth perverted. He's frustrated. Um. He's frustrated that the law is neglected. He's frustrated that violence and injustice are reigning. He's frustrated about corrupt leadership allowing all of it to happen. And he's demanding that God do something, right? He's praying and saying, God, do something here. Step in and fix this. Now, as he's crying out to God, I think he, I think he also has expectations for how God's supposed to respond in fixing it. Because we're going to see here that God steps up and says, hello, I, I am doing things and I am about to fix it. But Habakkuk doesn't like the way that he fixes it, right? So not only only is Habakkuk praying and identifying problems that need to be fixed, he's also identified the solution. And it's kind of implied here in the book, I also have your solution for you, God, right? And, and, And the way that he responds to God's solution kind of helps us see that probably what he was wanting God to do was to bring about revival in the hearts of the people, to squash the evil leadership and judge them, to bring about righteousness to the land so that punishment could be avoided, right? That, that's what he wants, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? We've seen that in some of these other prophetic books, right? Jonah shows up, preaches that God's going to judge, and the people repent, the leadership gets right, the violence is stopped, and God says, okay, I'm not going to bring the punishment. So I think Habakkuk is longing for that type of scenario where, hey, well, will you make people listen to me? Because he is a prophet, so p- perhaps he's preaching sermons and preaching lessons to these people, and they're not listening, right? And so I think he's crying out to God, when will this stuff stop? And, he, and he's probably implying, when will people listen to me 
and the call to repent so that we can avoid punishment, right? Like that's, that's what's kind of going on in Habakkuk's mind. And then God responds, and what God's response is is that he plans to use the Babylonians to address Judah's sin. And this is even more confusing to Habakkuk than God tolerating Judah's sin, right? So you've got the people of God acting very ungodlike. God, when are you going to step in? When are you going to fix this? When are you going to do something? God's like, I am about to do that. I'm bringing the Babylonians, and they're going to overthrow Judah, and they're going to exile Judah, and this is, this is going to uh, stop this behavior. And that makes Habakkuk just slam on the brakes, and he's got, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. These people are worse than us. Like, why would you use the, the worst group of people to come fix the people that are your people? Right? Like, this, this just doesn't make sense to him. His, his mind is completely jumbled about how this could possibly be God's plan. Babylon's worse in the eyes of Habakkuk than Judah. So, if you think in terms of Job being a book where we have to think through the justice and goodness of God when a righteous individual suffers, Habakkuk is a book that, that forces us to think through how does the justice and, and goodness of God, how do we reconcile that when a wicked nation is about to prosper? Like God's saying, man, Babylon's about to be given Judah. Babylon's about to experience victory over my people because of their sin. And Habakkuk's like, how can God use evil to address evil? God's answer to Habakkuk is God's answer to us today as well. And that's what I want us to see. That, that God is all-powerful, and he's absolutely good. But what we can't always understand and see is that in his goodness and his power, he is fully capable of using evil to accomplish his purposes. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes. It's hard for us to grasp how he could use wicked leadership, you know, leaders who, who are immoral, leaders who, who aren't good to accomplish good things, right? Like, how does God bring Nebuchadnezzar in, who is a wicked individual, to bring good upon his people? Well, it gets Judah's attention, right? It gets their attention about their idolatry, gets their attention about how they're living, so that when they do come back from exile, things have been fixed in their hearts at times, right? Um, and, and that's great comfort to us in, in a country where we don't always have uh, Christian moral leaders leading our government and our country, right? Um, and, and yet what we can see is examples of how God can use immoral leadership to do good things, to accomplish good things. And it doesn't mean that we have to agree or like the leadership, but we can certainly praise God that his, his all-powerfulness and his all-goodness reigns over bad leadership, whether it's here in the United States, whether it's in communist China, wherever they may be. God is using, he is capable of using evil for his good purposes. We see God's response in chapter one. Habakkuk has brought a complaint to God and the Lord answers him in verse five. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, and he's about to prove that because he's about to tell him and, and he's not gonna understand it. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Right? Nothing good here about the Babylonians, and God admits that. Right? He says, I'm about to raise these people up, and here who the, here's who those people are in case you're not aware, Habakkuk, although he is fully aware of who they are. Because look what he says in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. He's Habakkuk saying, look, the people of Babylon treat people like animals, right? Like they're not good to people. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk's like, I, I, I don't know what to do with this answer, God. I don't understand how... I can bring concerns to you and you respond and say, here's how you're going to deal with my concerns because you've seemingly created a worse situation in my mind. And so now he says, I'm gonna step back and I wanna hear from you. I wanna hear what you have to say. God goes on and we won't take the time to read it now. We will in a minute. In in chapter two, begins to describe how, look, the Babylonians aren't getting away with anything. God says their judgment is coming as well. Their judgment's coming as well. You get into chapter three, and, and, and as has been true for all of our prophetic books so far, God talks about the judgment that comes on evil, but the restoration that happens for his people. He's always extending this great hope that while we endure difficulty now as Christians, while we endure difficulty as being followers of him who fear him, there's coming a day where he will step in for all time and fix the things that drive us crazy right? He's going to step in and fix it. All the injustices, all the wrongs, all the sin, all the evil that wreaks havoc on our life, the stuff that we do, the stuff done to us, the stuff that we hear about, like all that's going to get fixed. And he talks about that in chapter three and tells us how, how to deal with it while we wait. Okay, so we're going to see all that here um, as we get into our notes this morning. So number one, understand that God is always at work. And you may be hearing this and you may be, you may be feeling this exact same feeling that Habakkuk has this morning, right? We've prayed about some different things today, right? We've prayed about some different things today. It doesn't make sense to us for an all-powerful good God to not immediately give Christian families who desire to adopt kids. It just doesn't make sense, right? Like we know kids are in bad situations, in bad homes, experiencing evil, and yet we have to jump through all these hoops and fill out all this paperwork and get all this approval and then sit and wait for good Christian families to be able to rescue kids out of bad situations. It doesn't make sense why that takes so long, right? 
doesn't make sense why sickness and disease comes into the life of a Christian who, who's seeking to, to follow God, seeking to live for him, seeking to honor him. It doesn't make sense why we would get something like kidney disease or cancer. It doesn't make sense why those things would happen. Right? So you may be sitting here today feeling, maybe not willing to admit, but inwardly you know you're feeling some of the tension that Habakkuk's talking about. How can he be all-powerful? How can he be good? And how can evil things still exist? How can that be possible? Right? What we learn from this book is that God is always at work, even when we don't feel like he is. Right? I learned, uh, kind of go back to that adoption piece, I learned that uh, this week that David Platt and his family, pastor Brook Hills Church, moved up to Virginia now, um, they were, they were five days away from adopting their kid when coronavirus stuff shut everything down. I mean, five days away. They were going to get him. Everything was done, all the paperwork, all the approval process. Like, we're going to get him. And, and they can't get to him right now. They still haven't been able to get to him. Like, this was back in, like in March when they were supposed to go. And they can't get over there right now. And so he was, you know, he was asking for prayer online today. It's like, look, like he just celebrated another birthday. Like, like days are escaping us that he could be a part of this, this godly Christian family. Why, why didn't God wait five days to shut everything down so this one family could get overseas, get this kid, rescue him, bring him back over, right? Like, like if he's all powerful, if he's good, like why isn't he doing the things that we think he should be doing to fix some of this stuff? We have to remember that God's always at work. He's always at work. Number one, he's aware of the evil in the world. He's not uninformed or complacent about the evil, right? Habakkuk doesn't bring new information to him. Doesn't, it doesn't inform God of something that he wasn't aware of, right? Because God indicates to him, look, I'm at work. I am doing a work in your days. I am raising up the Chaldeans. This isn't God saying, you know what, Habakkuk, you are absolutely right. What have I been doing, right? Like I was, I was you know, just lazy, complacent, like thought it would go away on its own, but you're right. I need, to, I need to put together a plan here. So why don't we use the Babylonians over here? They could be a good instrument right now. We'll bring them over here and, and have them judge this, right? Like that's not how God's responding to Habakkuk. God, God says, look, I, I'm doing something here that just way beyond your capacity to understand this, but I'm going to go ahead and give you some insight here. I've been raising up the Babylonians for years right? Because the Assyrians were currently the empire that was ruling and reigning, and he's allowing the Babylonians to come to power. Why not just use the Assyrians? Because they need to be judged too, because they're evil and wicked, and so God's going to use the Babylonians to overthrow the Assyrians and to overthrow Judah, right? And so God says, look, I've been at work. I'm aware of this, right? But number two, um, we're going backwards. God is patient in his response to evil as well. So he's aware of evil, and then he's also patient in his response to evil. And we need him to be this way, right? Like we long for him to be this way. He remains slow to anger because we can't have God be quick to anger for other people and yet demand him be slow to anger towards us. But that's typically how we operate. It's typically how we want it, right? Like we want God to always be gracious and merciful to us, but we also want him to be very, very quick to anger towards other people. It drives us crazy if he's, if he's slow to anger and patient with others, right? But we throw our hands up and, and cry foul if he's, if, he's, if he's not that way towards us for sure, right? And we can't have it both ways. He's a God who is slow to anger, He's patient and he's merciful and he's gracious. And he's certainly acting that way here towards um, Judah. He's been acting that way, right? Um, number three, he's intentional in his response to evil, 
He's been preparing Babylon behind the scenes to be his instrument of justice on Judah well before Habakkuk thought that something needed to be done, right? Well before this injustice came to Habakkuk's attention, God was already aware of it. God was already moving. God was already working to fix it. And that that needs to be comforting and encouraging to us as well, right? Every adoption situation we prayed for this morning, God is completely sovereign over it. Look what it says in uh, chapter 2. At the very end of chapter 2, it lists off a bunch of evil that's happening. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What does that say to us? It says God is right where he's supposed to be, and that's on his ruling throne. He is there in control, and nothing's getting by him. Nothing is being missed by him. Right? He's, He's fully in control, and he's at work, and that needs to be encouraging to us. He's at work in the adoption process. He's in work in the, in the sickness process. He's at work in, in, in marriages that are struggling. He's, he's at work in the midst of all of that. And he's bringing things into play to fix it. Even if it's behind the scenes, even if it's veiled at sometimes, and even if it's seemingly inconsistent to us, right? Like there, there were things in my life that were wrong when, when my dad left my mom. And there were things that got fixed real quickly with me having to move home from Virginia to be with my mom. But if you were to, if you were to ask me at that time, I would say that the things that God would end up fixing in me through that process pale in comparison to the evil that my dad was doing, right? Like, how, how can God use the evil of my dad and his choices to fix some things in my life that don't seem as bad as, as what needed to be fixed in, in his kind of a thing, right? Um, God, God is at work, and it doesn't always make sense to us, but he's working and fixing things in us, those around us, and he uses sometimes unconventional means to do it, like not the ways that we would choose to do it. Um, and we can take comfort in the fact that God is assuring us that he's always at work, always at work, Number two, we can trust his work even when it's confusing. We trust his work even when it's confusing. Because that's the second complaint that comes from Habakkuk now, right? Like, where are you, God? Why aren't you dealing with this? God says, I'm dealing with it. I'm bringing up the Babylonians. They're going to take care of the injustices. Habakkuk's like, look, they're more unjust than us. You're just creating more problems. How are you going to fix this now? He says, I'm going to stand by on my watchtower, and I'm I'm listening for the complaint for how you're going to answer this. Look what it says in verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Right? Like this is, this is so that we have this today. Right? Because we're asking the same questions today that Habakkuk's asking way back then. God says, go ahead and write this down because other people are going to need the answer too. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. 
Then he starts to talk about what the Babylonians are involved in and guilty of. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will spoil for them, be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drink or make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What's that saying? God's saying, look, I'm fully aware of all the evil of of Babylon, right? I'm fully aware of how they get their power. I'm fully aware of how they treat people. I'm fully aware of how they abuse the good gifts of this earth, right? They're abusing their relationships with each other. They're abusing strong drink. I mean, they're just a a mess of a people themselves. And God says, that hasn't, that hasn't been missed by me. Hasn't been missed by me. And I'm going to bring judgment upon them. I'm going to bring judgment upon them. And so he tells Habakkuk, look, you don't have to worry about them. They too will be dealt with in their appropriate time. Number one, we should not expect that God's ways will always be easy to understand. I mean, he tells Habakkuk that in, verse, in chapter one, right? He says, I'm about to tell you something. And, and, and if it were told to you, you're, you're going to be amazed by it and not really understand it. Thankfully, God goes ahead and tells him so that we at least have some insight into to what God's doing here. But even still, it's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to reconcile. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. It doesn't have to make sense to us. We trust that he's working. And even when it's confusing, we can trust him in it. You know, Paul uses the same verse in Acts chapter 13, verse 41. Um, And he's talking to the Jewish people who are not responding to the gospel and he's turning the attention to the Gentile people, right? And, he, and, and he's saying, look, like you're not gonna understand what's about to happen, but in your rejection, the gospel's gonna go to the Gentile people. And that's the passage where you, you, you get this image, like he's preaching to the Jews and the Gentiles are kind of on the outside, like, you know, what's he saying? And then, he, and then, then they hear him say, I'm gonna start talking to the Gentiles now. And the, and the passage says, like, they start cheering. They're like, yes, like, we wanna hear this stuff. We want to respond to this stuff, right? Paul says, you're not gonna understand this. Um, we don't always understand the ways that God works. How can a holy God find a way to use evil for his purposes? From the human perspective, and, and this is probably how you're kind of feeling too, reading through this, Babylon is worse than Judah. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They treat humans like animals. Like, how can God use them? But think about it from the divine, divine perspective, from God's perspective. 
Who, who's more accountable for their actions? Babylon doesn't have the oracles of God. Babylon doesn't have God's word. Babylon doesn't have God's prophets. Babylon doesn't have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Babylon wasn't led by Moses and Joshua. Babylon didn't ever have King David or King Solomon ruling and reigning over them, right? God's looking at it and saying, yeah, from your perspective, Babylon's worse. From my perspective, like you guys are so far from what you're supposed to be with so much intentionality coming your way. I mean, who's more accountable, right? Like the Babylonians have the law written on their heart, right? They know what they're supposed to do from a limited perspective and God will hold them accountable for that. But God's looking at Israel, looking at Judah saying, look, burden of responsibility is on you. You have so much special revelation and you're doing very little with it, right? So from God's perspective, Judah's may be worse than Babylon. And he says, look, Babylon's not gonna escape, but we even see God's mercy in chapter three, that Judah's gonna be restored. So, so even we're very quick to maybe react and say, that's not fair for God to judge Judah with Babylon, they're worse. Whereas God says, look, Judah's got a big responsibility because I've given them a lot of knowledge and they're doing nothing with it. But even if that's hard to understand, Babylon's gonna be vanquished. Like nobody meets a person today that says, hey, I'm from Babylon or I'm a Babylonian, right? Like that would be super weird, right? But you meet Jewish people today, Right? You meet people who say, I'm a, I'm a descendant from, from the, the tribe of, uh, or from Israel, right? Like, like you get that still today. It's, the only people that are, that are around from the Old Testament still are Jewish people, right? So even though God judges them with a seemingly worse group of people, he still promises like this isn't gonna be your end, right? Like this is restorative. This is, this is discipline for you. This is me correcting you. This is me still having a plan for you. I'm not done with you. Right? And so we see God's goodness, even though immediately maybe we question God's goodness, it certainly shines through here. Number two, don't expect it to always make sense. Number two, we can be encouraged that God's ways will always become more clear later. Right? Even if it's not until Jesus comes back, his, his ways become more clear the longer they kind of play out. Right? We see now that Babylon's going to be held accountable too. And this is what we see in the Old Testament, God using these cycles of nations, right? These nations come to power. They, they are used as an instrument of judgment against others. And then, and then they fall into the same sins. And so God raises up another nation to, to bring judgment on them. And so you see this cycle going through throughout history of God raising up nations to punish sinful nations. But he doesn't allow the, the new nation to be tolerated if they continue in the same types of sins. He's always going to judge the selfish, the covetous, the exploiters, the drunkards, the idolaters. That's what we see in chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. He's not endorsing the evil of any person or any nation. He's always going to hold creation accountable for sin in his time. But what we see in Scripture is that he's slow to do that, purposefully, right? Think about what he tells uh, the children of Israel in Genesis 15. He tells Abraham, you're going to be a great nation, and you're going to become a great nation in Egypt where you're going to be in slavery for 400 years, right? And then I'm going to give you a land that's not your own. But I can't give it to you now because the Amorites' sin is not great enough yet for me to judge it. I'm still patient with them. I'm still kind to them. I'm still giving them the opportunity to repent, right? And you say, well, well why would God be patient like none of them ever repent, you know, except for the fact that Rahab does, right? Rahab's in the land, and when they come in to attack her and her people, she repents and she runs to God, 
right? So God says, look, the Amorite sin, not full yet, so you can't go into that land. You're going to have to be in slavery for 400 years because I'm waiting for their sin to, to reach a point where there is no return. We saw Israel's sin being allowed to ripen in Amos chapter 8, right? Like it's, it's, it's pictured as summer fruit that has grown all through the, the planting season, and now it's like ready for harvest. And it's a picture of God's patience in their sin. Uh, think about the sin of man and the sending of Christ, right? Romans chapter 3. God passed over the sins of many in the past so that he could bring judgment on his son, Jesus Christ, at the appropriate time. Galatians chapter 4 says when the fullness of time had come, that's when God sent his son to this earth, right? Like it's always in his timing. The Babylonians are not going to escape God's wrath, but he's going to be slow to enact it on them as well. He's going to be slow to enact it on them as well. Think about the Babylonians, their sin. Think about Nebuchadnezzar and all of his sin. Does God just, bam, strike them dead and wipe them out? No, like he's patient with them. Patient to the point that he puts Nebuchadnezzar out to pasture so that he can be humbled, so that in the book of Daniel, he comes back from acting like an animal, praising God, which is very consistent with what God says in Habakkuk chapter two, what my glory is going to fill this earth. The knowledge of who I am is going to fill this earth. And one of the ways that he allows the knowledge of him to fill this earth is that he's patient and slow to anger in dealing with sin because he gives people the opportunity to see it, to recognize it, and to respond to it. And we can be very thankful for that. His goal is his glory. We see that in chapter 2, verse 14. The knowledge of it filling the earth. And so as he works for his glory and for our good, Conforming us to the image of Christ, it's not always comfortable for us. It's not always the way that we would choose it. But we can take comfort that he's always at work. Even when it's confusing, we can trust him in it. And then number three, we need to worship him while we wait on him to finish his work. Worship while waiting on him to finish his work. When the world is in confusion and God's purposes are obscured, the righteous person has a responsibility to respond in faith. Like, that's how we make God look glorious. We, we show his glory by trusting him when it does look confusing, right? When, when we would be have, have every reason and every temptation to doubt him, when we keep turning to him in faith, that's when we show him to be so glorious. It's how we show it to others. Look what it says in Habakkuk chapter 2. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. I mean, that's a verse that gets quoted numerous times into the New Testament about the righteous and the just living by faith. The righteous are called to joyfully worship in faith when times feel bleak. Chapter 3, verse 17. Let me back up and, and show you what's in, in, in chapter 3 at the beginning part first, though. Um, Habakkuk starts to ponder and reflect upon God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in the past. And so he begins to list off all these things that God has done previously. If you read through this, you can tie a lot of this into the Exodus and some of the things that happened during the Exodus. Uh, when, the, you know, when the day stops for Joshua, uh, some of the, the, the nations that are mentioned here are nations that God delivered them from when he was leading them to the promised land. So Habakkuk is basically recalling God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in the past. So he kind of lists all this off in chapter 3, and then he gets to verse 17 after talking about all that. At the end of verse 16, he says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, 
the flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He says, I'm going to rejoice in this. I'm, I'm going to praise God in the midst of this. You know, his, his mind has been expanded about how to understand God. He thought God was indifferent. He thought God was inconsistent. He's seeing now that God is at work. He's always been at work. He's going to use evil. He's going to punish that same evil when it's appropriate. And, and then Habakkuk reflects on how he's seen God acting this way all throughout Israel's history. And it's, it's in light of all that that he can say at the end of this book, I'm going to trust you. Even when, when things are bleak, even when the cupboard is bare, I'm going to trust you because what I'm seeing now is that you're at work. Even when it's confusing, I can trust you because I've seen your faithfulness in the past to your people. We joyfully worship and we prayerfully wait. The righteous are called to prayerfully wait in faith on God to complete his work. Look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What's he praying there? He's saying, Lord, do, do what you're supposed to do. Do, do what you've planned to do. I, I'm submitted to it. I'm submitted to it. I don't fully understand it. I may still have some tension inside of me, but, I, but, I, but do it. Do it, and he appeals to God's mercy. And that's absolutely right and appropriate because that's how God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself to be a, a God who does not acquit the guilty, does not excuse the guilty, but he's a merciful, gracious, slow to anger God who offers forgiveness. And so Habakkuk says, God, bring the wrath, bring the judgment, couple it with mercy, we know that you're going to restore us because God says in chapter 2, we read it, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's coming. He's coming to deal with all this. I love the language that's used in chapter 3. That We're not, we're not going to read the whole thing, but in verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And it's a picture of what he's going to ultimately do to Satan that was promised in Genesis 3.15, right? He's going to crush the head of all evil. He's going to crush the leader of the evil, right? He's already been doing that throughout history. He's not going to delay in carrying out his plans, he, we, we just read chapter 3. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, All right? So 
what's our responsibility as Christians today? Our responsibility is to, is to joyfully worship him, even when things look confusing, even when, when difficulties are coming our way, even when it feels like God may be indifferent or inconsistent with how he's responding to evil. And we joyfully worship him and we prayerfully wait for him. We respond to the fact that we believe he's at work, even when it's confusing, that he's gonna be faithful because he's always been faithful to his people. And we can trust him even when things are bleak. We can trust that he's not going to delay and that he is going to act. So as we look at this, what did, what did Habakkuk get right? Like what, what, what perspectives were right that he had? Number one, he, he took his concerns vertical rather than horizontal, right? And, and, and this is something that, that is something that needs to be adopted by us in, in all aspects of our life, right? It, it never works to take your concerns and frustrations to, to, to people that are on the same level as you. Right? If your concerns or frustrations are with uh, some level of leadership, your boss or, or, or you know, God forbid, your pastor, right? like you, 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 bring those, you bring those vertically. You bring it to the person who can fix it. Right? Habakkuk doesn't have like these, these coffee sessions uh, to talk about how God's been inconsistent and indifferent to Israel's sin. Right? What does he do? But he's crying out to God about it. He's crying out to God about it, and that's where he should have gone. He goes vertically to deal with the issue. Right? And that was right and that was appropriate. He sees evil and has right expectations that things should be different based on God's character. Right? It's good and right for Habakkuk to be dissatisfied with the culture that he's seeing. It's good and right for him to feel that. Number three, he assumes that evil can only exist and operate if God allows it. And that's absolutely right too. The way he's expressing this is that you could stop this. You can stop this. And the only reason that it's allowed to, 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 to exist is because you have allowed it. And that's absolutely right as well. Evil is always submitted to God. Number four, he understands that God has the power to fix it and make things right. And that's absolutely true too. So there's a lot of right about Habakkuk, right? He goes to God, the source of his concern. He sees evil and says it's not right. He assumes that evil can only exist because God allows it. And he understands that God can fix it. But what did he get wrong? that God doesn't care about evil and isn't doing the right thing to fix it. That, that's where he was wrong. He jumped to the wrong conclusion. He accused God of being indifferent and inconsistent. And that just wasn't the case. All those things are true. The conclusion that we now see through this book is that God is at work, he does care, and he's moving history towards a point in time where he will deal with all of it. He will deal with all of it. So a couple of truths to remember for us this morning. Number one, God loves this world more than we do, right? He, he, he loves it more than we do, which means he cares about the injustices more than we do. He cares about the evil more than we do, right? He's not indifferent to it. He cares about the wrongs done to you and by you and has every intention of dealing with them. And thanks be to God, he deals with the ones done by us on the cross, and he'll deal with the ones done to us on the cross as well if somebody repents and gets things right. And if they don't, then he'll deal with it on judgment day, that, that, valley, uh, that valley of judgment that we saw in, in some of the earlier prophets. Number two, God will use surprising means to accomplish his ends. So we might as well just get used to that, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the secret's out now. God, God uses unconventional means sometimes to accomplish his purposes. Um, he uses unconventional people sometimes to accomplish his purposes right? Um, so don't be surprised by that anymore. Um, but trust him in those times when it feels confusing, because uh, we make his glory known more fully when people see us turning to him 
when we're in the midst of difficult times. So the question that I want to kind of leave you with before we sing is, have you been accusing God of indifference or inconsistently lately? And how does today's sermon speak truth to those feelings? And I told you, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we're either feeling some of the tension that Habakkuk was feeling right now. We've either felt with it in the past or we will feel, with it, feel that way in the future. And what my hope is that we can take the truths that we've seen today from the book of Habakkuk and let those speak truth to those feelings, to guide those feelings correctly so that, so that we, don't, we don't falsely think that we could ever care more about this world and the injustices going on in it more than God, right? Like, it could never be possible, never be possible. He's always at work. He's always at work, right? And his work is designed for his glory and for our good, and we can trust him with that, and we can celebrate that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the goodness of this book. We thank you for the truths that are contained here. God, we, in our, in our sin, uh, are, are tempted at times to doubt and, and to not trust you with our circumstances when they feel like evil is pressing in on us and it's being tolerated and not dealt with. But God, help us to realize that you are always at work. And sometimes you're working in ways that confuse us, but you're always at work and that your glory is something that will go forth and you're not going to allow sin and, and evil to, to exist forever because it would, it, would, it would be against your glory. You are going to judge it. You are going to deal with it because you are a God of justice. You do not excuse the guilty. You do not acquit the guilty. It's only by your son, Jesus Christ, that we can be forgiven. It's only by him bearing our punishment. Somebody has to be punished. Somebody has to be judged for our sin. And God, we're thankful that you have made a way of escape so that we can escape your wrath. But God, help us to never forget that your wrath didn't just go away. That when the fullness of time had come, you sent Jesus to bear your wrath for us. We praise you and thank you for that this morning. God, help us to trust you when it's hard to trust you. Help us to, to put our faith in you when it's, when it's confusing. God, help us to see the faithfulness that you've demonstrated for years and years and years in the past. And God, I pray that it would bring us to the point where we can say, man, if you don't do the things that we want you to do or the ways that we think you should do them, we will still rejoice in you and we will still trust in you. God, we pray that you won't delay. We pray that you will come soon. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.